Welcome to The Soccer Podcast, where we talk soccer in Delaware, soccer in the rest of the world, and everything in between. My name is Sebastian, and this week I'm joined here by Anthony. Going on, everybody. Dwayne. Hey, how are you guys doing? And for the first time ever on The Soccer Podcast, the one and only, we finally got him. He's able to made it some time for us. Soccer Dan. Hi, everybody. I'd like to thank you all for coming. Thank you for coming. Dan, we are My very pleasure. excited. We, I, I don't think you've heard. I think you're a couple of episodes behind, but we've been talking to your people about getting you on the podcast. We know you had a lot of demands. You had a busy schedule. Um, did you get everything you asked for? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, shoot, the fact that I'm on a podcast is pretty unprecedented in these unprecedented times. Yes. Did our marketing and analytics department do a good job of getting in contact with you? Uh, my people, your people were able to work it out. Yep. Good. So Perfect. here I am. Perfect. Good. I'm, we're very excited to have you on. So for everybody that doesn't know, uh, soccer Dan or Dan or coach Dan, Dan Simmons, he's one of the coaches for Delaware union. Um, Dan, you've been at the club for how long? uh when did it start that's when i started a little bit before that with cdsa mm -hmm. so then when mot and delaware union merged 2014 i was there 2014 so what's that like 10 12 years uh six or, or six <laughs> for or whoever's six. counting <laughs> really good math uh but yeah and then uh your lifelong delawarean uh nope Nope, nope. I actually, uh, oh, I, I feel like I've been here all my life, but I am a an Air Force brat. Okay. So I was actually born in California, lived in Guam for a little while, and then my family moved to Delaware in the early '80s. Wow, did not know that. Yep, yeah, yep. So I, uh, I, I'm fortunate that uh, we wound up here and. Um, and I've enjoyed Delaware so much so that even after leaving for several years, I came back. That's awesome. We're, we're very happy that you're, that you, that you are in Delaware and we'll get, we'll get a little bit more into your history in a little bit, but uh, we're going to talk about some club updates. Um, this episode's going to be a little bit different. So we are going to talk to Dan about some of a little bit of his history. Then we're going to talk about the MLS and, and some of the things that have happened um and we'll going to um add in a, another part of the interview we had with john shear and ian hennessy from last week so uh part two of three will be will be on the podcast today so uh we'll talk briefly about the camp that we didn't really get to do much of uh so Dwayne, you were at the camp this week uh got hit with a tropical storm on tuesday so we couldn't do camp and then rain and thunderstorms this morning so but how were the two days of camp that you did have well they're the best two days of camp you can have the kids are fresh and eager to work you know they've been waiting all this time to get out there they've gotten out there the mother nature's kind of cut them out from being out there but you know everybody's having fun energetic i've seen uh some of the younger groups uh coached by coach kyle and derrickson getting after the uh little techniques getting the kids going like the grassroots stuff so it's going pretty good and everybody's enjoying themselves good good that's awesome and then um the last day for the camp is tomorrow uh and then next week we start the travel team camp which i'm really excited about uh we're gonna have a ton of players uh, a lot of coaches on the fields are gonna be a lot of really cool things that anthony and i are planning um for it uh soccer dan might make an appearance hopefully um gotta so, talk to people right you gotta talk i gotta i gotta check his i gotta check the schedule with his assistant so um and then this past weekend Dwayne, dan and i even though Dwayne and i were together two of the days dan was there on sunday we had our first tournament experience uh in this whole covid world uh so the o3 girls our high school girls team went up at the pen went up to the pen fusion showcase uh, went one, one, and one against some good competition. Uh, played decent soccer. We considering it was 
first weekend back in five months. And for a lot of our players, they hadn't played in a while. So it was a, it was a good showing by them. And I think more importantly, it was a good showing by them in front of the right people. There's a lot of college coaches that talked to, talk to our players, um, had a lot of good things to say about our players. So we're very excited about that. And then uh, Dwayne, you and Dan were there on Sunday, right? Yeah. So yeah, we had a coach, but we only have one of the coaches there, but he was there for all of the games. He checked it out, you know, kind of same experience. It was a good game. Uh, Dan, you have anything to add? No, it, it'll just be exciting to see, see the teams get their legs back. Um, it was apparent that it was somewhat of a struggle just you know, with everybody getting back into full competition. So it'll be exciting to see the improvement. You could tell that some of the kids were frustrated just because they were used to playing at a certain level. Um, and then the, you know, the, the conditions, three, three games in three days and uh, the heat and, and the long layoff kind of took an impact on uh, their ability to perform kind of what I think they expected to be able to do. Right. Now, uh, I, I thought the restrictions helped. Um, I thought for the most part, the guidelines were obviously a different experience for all of us to be able to follow. But for the most part, were manageable. Um, I don't think they took away necessarily from the experience, obviously from a parent perspective, there was less parents allowed on the field, which as players get older, there's less people watching the games anyways, at least on the, from the parents and family side. Um, but we so if I may to, clarify, there, there were no yeah. parents on the field. They were all well, on the sidelines. On the sidelines, correct. This is, uh, why, okay. this is why Dan is going to be an awesome part of this podcast. Well, I do not want our listeners to, to assume that now the new normal is parents are allowed to be on the field. But we're, in fact, discouraging that. Correct. You're absolutely okay. correct. Yeah. Unless it's the discovery program, then you're allowed to be on there. If you're and only at the U3 and U4 program. You got it. That's right. <laughs> um, so for the most part, I thought the guidelines were good. We have another team going up to the younger version of the same tournament this weekend. The 08 girls are going up on Saturday and Sunday. And then we also have our 2004 boys team have a tournament, I believe in Jersey this weekend. So we'll we'll get a recap of that when we come back next week for the for the podcast. Um, our recreational registration is open, uh, so you make sure you go check that out. DelawareUnion.com is our website. You can also check us out on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash DelawareUnion, Instagram at DelawareUnionSoccer, and Twitter at DEUnionSoccer. Uh, you can also check out Soccer Dan at SoccerDan302. Right, Dan. <laughs> Yeah, you can check check it out. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I w- no promises. Let's let's get let's get some likes on Soccer Dan's uh, Instagram. Uh, so oh, check out so- check out Soccer Dan on Instagram. Let's get let's get his likes up. Um, so moving on to something that happened probably within the last two hours, uh, and it impacts Dan and Anthony as they're both high school coaches. But DIAA, or actually, sorry, sorry, the Department of Education. Uh, Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it the Department of Education that put out, or was it the state government that put out the the restrictions or guidelines? Or no, the D, the DIAA just uh, had a meeting on um, basically how they were going to go about having the season. Obviously the public safety gives their guidelines and then they give their rec- their recommendations. And then it's got to be approved by um, uh, the department of uh, education or whatever it is in Delaware. But basically the, D- uh, the athletic directors and some other conferences put together a few options on how we could go about sports in the fall, if any, and the DIAA um, just decided to vote no sports in in the fall and uh, i guess we will they will reconvene sometime in september and try to figure out the start dates for each sport if it's going to be winter in the winter still and then a modified fall and spring season or um if it's going to be some changing of sports to different seasons that can be played at different times or whatever it is we just know that uh they voted to not have fall sports today so what what's your what's your opinion on this, Dan? 
considering you're a high school soccer coach or the soccer director for Polytech High School? I'm definitely not the soccer director. <laughs> However, here's a, it, it certainly is weird, uh, if I can use um, that word. Um, That's a lot. Not only am I not only my coach, I also teach there. That's true. So, um, you know, it, everybody wants to get back to as normal as we can possibly get. Um, and it's, you know, I think it just shows that we, as I guess as adults are trying our best to look out for the community. You know, it's, it's understood that maybe kids are, not as susceptible, um, but I think there's a tremendous logistical challenge that's faced by putting kids into play, you know, especially when they're not riding in individual cars and there's 30 to 40 kids on a bus uh, for a game, you know, and then they've recently been in contact with potentially 30 to 40 kids during the game. So it's, you know, I, I I'm sure that the decision that was made is not an easy one to come to. Um, but I can't say that it was terribly unexpected either. Right. So it's, um, you know, it's the, the good news is that they didn't cancel this season and that they're expecting to be able to just postpone it. So, you know, although it doesn't fall at a, at a great time, um, I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, they kind of knew it was coming. Or we'll say similar. that Dan did call this like back in like April. He said there won't be a fall high school season. Well, call this. It's just you know, I'm not privy to any information that other folks are not. But when you just consider, you know, we want to get kids into school. That's the primary thing, right? It is you know they're student athletes, um, and we got to make sure that we're looking out for the academic aspect of it first. Um, you know, it's, it is tough. It, you know, I've been coaching at Polytech. This would be my 10th year, uh, for both boys and girls. Unfortunately, the girls season was cut short after just two weeks. So there was a whole group of girls that didn't get to play their senior year. Um, and you know, even after we know more about what's going on, we still don't know enough. Um, so, you know, with, with the state saying that they're encouraging hybrid learning. I don't know logistically how you can get kids to practices when they may not even be at the school. So that's kind of, I think that's the hard part, right? There was a, there was a, so Delaware approved the hybrid start to the school system um, and the ability for parents to opt out of going in person completely. So, that becomes more difficult if 60, let's just say, because I, I read a number where it was 60% of people in, a, in one school district or one school had voted or decided to not send their, their kids in person. How are you then able to play sports? That becomes difficult. And then especially for some of the smaller schools that rely on a lot of their student body to participate in sports, that even makes it harder. So I think that's, again, I, I agree with Dan. I think the decision I'm sure wasn't, wasn't done without a whole lot of thought process behind it. I'm sure there was a lot of thought process behind it. And I don't think anybody doesn't want the kids to be back in school or doesn't want the kids to be able to play sports. It's just what's the safest way of what's the easiest way to control the environment. I think it's probably the, the best part of it. What's the easiest way or what's the one thing we can, can try to control. So. Well, just from the DIAA's perspective in like their rules, if you weren't going to some form of school, um, that's in the actual school, you couldn't play sports anyway. So you're already excluding uh, schools like William Penn, who decided to go fully remote. Right. Well, if you were to have a season, and they, what are they going to come in in the middle of the season, or they don't get to because there's school, you know, there's definitely a lot of different variables. And, and like Dan said, it was something that was expected. Um, I just for soccer purposes, February to the middle of April, which is where it's looking like, not a great time. So we're gonna a lot of, a lot of turf, a lot of turf play. 
Uh, turf, turf play. I mean, if if there's no snow, play. <laughs> if, if there's no snow, and uh, then you, you you know, especially for seniors, you talk about wanting to save these seasons for seniors. If you have any of those club players, you know, the end of February, that first uh, little bit of March is like their last chance to get in front of Division three college coaches. So it's like, so now you're asking them to, okay, do I go practice with my club team or do I stay here and practice with high school? It's just, I think it's going to change the entire landscape to a certain extent, at least from our area. It's a really uh, interesting thing. Well, I think it'll depend also what Jersey and Pennsylvania do because that that dictates a little bit of what our leagues and showcase. But there are not a lot of showcase opportunities in the fall season to begin with. It's not like there are, you know, between now and November, December, there's seven or eight showcases that we can choose to to do. There's really not. You have uh, this past weekend, you have Labor Day, and, and maybe the week before Labor Day. Then you have Columbus Day, and then a couple things here and there between November and December. So there's not a ton of opportunities. And the other part, the tough part, which uh, I, I mean, we, we saw when we spoke to some of the schools this past weekend with our high school girls is – a lot of these coaches want to get out and see other players because there are the majority of these schools don't have a season anymore in the fall. So now I think it's going to be interesting within the next month or two, if these new showcases possibly start to pop up in October, I think October would be a prime time to create a showcase for, for, for high school players because before November, before December, before they ultimately go back to high school sports, which is what they want, because from a social perspective, it's extremely important. Um, and and right of it. So going back to what you said about Pennsylvania and New Jersey, seeing what they're going to do, Pennsylvania, their governor just said today, while I was listening in on the DIAA call, um, they just said today that he recommends no sports until January 1st. So they may be changing their model as well. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Maybe it'll all fall in line and it'll just be flipped for one year, but we'll see how it goes. It'll definitely make the interesting also, the, the spring very interesting as well. Um, so we'll move on. <clears throat> We're going to move on to, before we get into the second half, the second part of the interview with, with John Shear and Ian Hennessy, we're going to talk about the MLS's back tournament for a minute. Um, so we're recording on a Thursday. So for everybody out there, because you'll hear the podcast on Friday, but we're recording on a Thursday today. So the Philadelphia Union lost yesterday, two to one. Boo! A <laughs> um, little bit of controversy, I guess you could maybe say, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but at the same time, you give up two goals off of corner kicks and you miss a PK. It's Can somebody tell me why in that position, and, and I understand your, your striker's got three goals in two games and maybe he's feeling it, but pretty big, big time to have somebody take their first professional penalty kick. I, I, maybe that's just me. When you have someone like Alejandro Bedoya, uh, who's got, you know, U.S. national caps and, and has been through it and has been in, like, maybe the most toughest environment you've ever – you could ever play in as a soccer player. And uh, why I just – why is he not taking that? I, I mean, obviously I get to give the ball to the hot hand and if he get goes up there and grabs that ball, go ahead. But that just seems questionable. Obviously, Monday morning quarterback looking back here. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean – Hopefully it, it, locker room discussion. Well, that. there's. I think there's that, and I think I just. I, I think it was a tough matchup to begin with. I think Portland is offers something that makes it difficult for the Union to play. I mean, the what the Union were able to do against Sporting Kansas City, they were never able to do against Portland. They were never able to counter them that quick and hit them with the counterattacks that they did against Sporting KC. So that becomes difficult. Um, and I think you're dealing with players like Diego Valeri and. Blanco, who are very good at set pieces, they're 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 very very good. So Andre Blake comes up with big saves, but at the same time, I, I mean the the second goal I think is disappointing. You can't you can't let some you can't let somebody head the ball twice inside the eighteen. It becomes very difficult at that point. Both both goal, goals were lack of communication or just laziness on uh, 
yeah. we're defending. It was which they've done such a nice job of throughout the tournament, but they they fought to the end. I think this is a good thing for the union, though. I think it's they've they showed it's a good reality check. Yeah, but I think they showed. I think that they showed that they're no longer necessarily the underdog. I I don't I don't consider the Philadelphia Union the underdog in comparison to what they've done in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're I think they're here to play. I think they're here to compete. Um, I think they have a shot at competing at the top of the table. Um, I don't think it's a oh my goodness if we make the playoffs it's fine. It's no, that should be an expectation. That's okay. It's okay to say that you've you've made it to the part where it's expected for you to make the playoffs. Um, so, uh, so tonight is Orlando against Minnesota. Yep. That's going to be an interesting game. Um, we'll see, see who ends up playing the final next Tuesday. No, yeah, just- Minnesota, Minnesota actually has a target on their chest. Why do you say that? Cause they literally have a target on their chest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, there you go. I'm uh, here all day, folks. <laughs> go Orlando. Uh, you go, you're going for Orlando? I mean, I, 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 as a Manchester United fan, I always have a soft spot for Nani, so I'll go ahead and root him on. That's fair. All right, fair enough. Uh, Dan, we're going to get to know you a little bit better. Oh, boy. Uh, so uh, how did you get started in coaching soccer in general? Uh, so my first – coaching job which wasn't really a job because I got no money um, I got no swag um, was with the first travel team in Dover for girls okay so as a 19 year old I was asked to help um, be the assistant and it was a it left quite an impact on me. Uh, my, I was actually coaching some of my friend's sisters um, and some of our fellow coaches' sisters. So it was, uh, it was really neat. And now um, I have actually been, over the past couple of years, I have actually coached their kids. So that's, <laughs> that's how long I've been at this. <laughs> that's awesome. Yep. That's uh, I I've gotten the I've gotten the pleasure of being able to work with Dan one on one or one on one meaning like I've gotten to coach together with Dan, uh, for multiple years on some on some different teams and it's probably one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had. Well, that's uh, nice of you to say. Checks in the mail. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's just I think I think what Dan brings to the table uh, now he, we can see him now. Uh, I think what Dan brings that uh, that sometimes is difficult to find from a soccer perspective or from a coaching perspective is a joy, a true joy for doing this. Uh, I don't think I've really ever heard Dan yell a whole lot outside of when he coaches sometimes his, his 2006 boys. He sometimes gets a little um, upset or frustrated, uh, which can happen at that age. But I, have having somebody just completely enjoy this is is awesome and i i truly enjoy coaching with dan um and i want to be able to coach more with dan so thanks yeah no problem that was very heartfelt it was i i talk about soccer dan all the time <laughs> for better for worse usually for better yeah no it's fun i mean listen if you get into coaching for the money you're going to be terribly disappointed um, so, so getting involved because you want to see kids grow, um, whether it's personally or athletically, um, you know, and, and through the social aspects of it, you know, being involved in the community. And that's, that's, I think what is missing a lot of times in, um, the soccer landscape is, you know, people look at it, Hey, this is going to be a great job. And unfortunately, if you look at it that way, it's, it's going to be very difficult to find happiness. Um, and I, I truly enjoy working with the kids. I, you know, whether they're three years old or 19 years old, um, my 14 year olds are, you know, I, I 
to your point, I probably get frustrated because I have high expectations for them, you know, and I want to see them succeed. So at times it can be frustrating, but you know, I, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for any one of those young men. Um, so I think, I think, I think Dan is going to win in this. Uh, so I think we're going to take away the title from Dwayne for having the most like out there outside job outside of soccer. So Dan, if you didn't hear Dwayne worked at uh, Hollister for 48 hours once upon a time and didn't even get a free shirt out of it. So we want to know what job outside of coaching have you had that maybe was a little bit weird or out there that can be appropriately said in the podcast? Um, well, I just wrapped up a stint as a sunflower cutter for a local farm. So that, that might seem a little out there. Um, having grown up in Delaware, I was never around cattle, cows until I moved to North Carolina. I actually worked as a ranch hand on a little cattle ranch um, while I was in college. So riding horses and rounding up cows. I did that for a while. Um, that was maybe a little out there. Uh, um, let's see. Probably my most interesting job, if I should say it, would be there was an old ice plant in Dover that shut down several years back. Uh, the EPA had to come in and clean up the place. Um, I worked with, how can I phrase this? Many unsavory um, characters, <laughs> guys that were like sleeping in the warehouse portion or in the back of the um, tractor trailer trucks um, that would actually have to sober up. And sometimes I was the one that had to go find them so that they would come and do their job. So as a 14 year old kid trying You're to tell 14? these. 30, yeah, I was 14. Oh uh, man. It was uh, between nope. my, between my eighth grade and my ninth grade year of uh, school. So I would have to go find these 30, 35 year old men, sober them up or kick them, whatever it took to get them to wake up, to get them to come and do their job. So um, it's not a 48 hour at Hollister experience, but it was something that if you've ever seen the movie Shameless or the show Shameless, <laughs> yes, there's that character Frank. Uh-huh. Well, imagine three francs, <laughs> and that's what I was—that's what I was working with. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, I know that sounds—that's sounds like enough right there. But the actual the manager of the place actually had a dog with—it was a dachshund, and dachshunds are notorious for having hind leg issues. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I ever saw a dog with wheels. <laughs> the, the dog had back issues. So needless to say, the dog could not clean itself. And the guy that owned the dog did not clean the dog either. So this dog was rolling around. If PETA had shown up, we would have been shut down. The EPA showed up to shut the place down. Um, quite an experience, if I dare say so myself. <laughs> You win. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. I think that's – I could say that's what made me what I am today. So, all right. So, who are your three favorite soccer players? So, I would have to say one of them begins with Pele. Um, you know, just for what he did, I think, for, the, for soccer in the U.S. Um you know, and, and seeing the growth aside from what he did throughout the world. But I think the impact that he had on, on the, on the U S um, and just kind of helping make um, Americans more aware 
I think I have to say that's that's one of them. Um, Entertainment-wise, I would definitely have to say Ronaldinho. And, you know, it, it changes probably even year to year, right? You know, you, we've seen so many great players, especially now that we've got access to the Internet and there are videos from all over the world that have uploaded to the Internet over the last, what, 30 years. Um, we can now see things that when when I was growing up were not available. Yep. Um, so I think that's that's kind of shown us that there's a whole been a whole lot of great players out there. But um, really, right now you're talking about the Philadelphia Union, and you know I'm really excited about Brendan Aronson. Like I just I think he is somebody that young kids should watch. You know I I think he's improving pretty much game by game, but I think his, you know, his work ethic, uh, the effort that he puts in during the games, um, you know, last night that run he made that, you know, they were almost able to tie the game up with yeah. was, was, you know, something that I think the union has lacked. Um, you know, when El Sino's in, they kind of expect that from him, but, you know, I think he adds an extra dynamic to the union. And I think it's awesome that they were able to see him every time the union plays, you know, it's, it's not blocked out. Uh, we have access to, for kids to be able to watch. And I think he is somebody that the kids should, should watch and, and should get to uh, see how he moves about the field. And, you know, I think he's a good role model. So I definitely have to add him to that list of uh, favorite players. Uh, if you had to coach a different sport, what would it be? It could maybe be. Can I take a guess? Yeah. What would it be? Pickleball. I was considering that one, um, but I know so little about that sport. Um, badminton, probably. Okay. I'd probably pick badminton. I don't know the rules. I don't think anybody else does, so it'd be kind of easy. <laughs> <laughs> we just just let the referees be the ones really uh enforce them telling us yep that's it just go out there and hit that little shuttlecock thing hit it hard there you go uh all right a three five two or a four three three now having listened to your some of the previous podcasts you know the, i think the point is always made well it depends on your personnel Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think four, three, three, maybe, but again, it depends on the personnel, um, you know, and, and if we can get people to, to do what they're supposed to do, it's, you know, it, knowing, knowing that it's going to be, um, unlikely that people will be able to that the wingbacks are going to be able to get up and down the field it, it makes it difficult for um some of the formations but i mean i think i think the 433 could probably be easier for people to understand you got 5 minutes left in the game you're up one nothing do you go for the second goal or do you park the bus hmm. Dwayne and I actually had this conversation in the middle of the game on Saturday. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, oh no, Friday it was Friday. Friday, yeah. Um, I I play more conservatively. Uh, parking the bus, I guess, is for lack of a better term, that's probably what I would look to do. All right, what's next? What's next? Well, good, thank, glad you asked. The Player of the Match award is next. Oh. So uh, <laughs> you were so you sounded so excited about that. Uh, let's see where this goes. Which match? Uh, it's whatever match you want. We like to give an award or a paperless award, electronic award per se, uh, to a player that we think stood out during the during the week. Um, so I'm gonna let Dwayne go first. Going back to uh, Jeremy. Bobasi. Uh well, he, he, he didn't score yesterday. Yeah, he did. He scored the first goal. 
Oh, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he scored the first oh, goal. Man, yeah. Yeah, he's on fire. He's going. But you're, so, speaking, but you're speaking against the union, though. That's. Hey, but I've been on the Jeremy train since the start. Like, this has kind of been, like, my two favorites. They had to meet at some point. Wish it was the final, but like I said at the beginning of the tournament, if you've got a dangerous forward, I know it's kind of like, yeah, you need to score goals, but if you've got a dangerous forward, you can go far in the tournament. And Portland's got a dangerous forward, and they're in the final. So, Anthony? I mean, Casper definitely was not dangerous yesterday, that's for sure. Um, but um, no, I'm, I'm going to go just with Andre Blake. I, the saves he was making just to keep them in that game, uh, just to give them the chance in those last seven or eight minutes. The whole tournament. He was, uh, yeah, well, he's, this is like the second time he's been, I think he should be the, the man of the tournament. But he, he's, those saves yesterday, it, it kept him in the game. That's why you have a good goalkeeper. Just like if you have a good forward, you can win any tournament. So Andre Blake. Man, yeah, and I'm going to go with uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Um, he, the Arsenal won the FA Cup on Saturday. So uh, he scored both goals, uh, did a flip when he scored the second goal, scored a beautiful second goal, um, and now is in talks of hope or maybe resigning – or not resigning, re-signing, uh, not resigning. He's going to sign a new contract. Good. Um, uh, so there's, he's in talks about possibly doing that. Um, captain of the team. And I think at least shout out to my friend Fields, who is a big Arsenal fan. At least from his perspective, he enjoys the fact that he's at, the, at Arsenal. So they, um, They're really coming out of the woodworks, aren't they? <laughs> All the Arsenal fans, they're back out of the woodworks. They won one cup. Oh, no, listen, I, I will give a credit to my friend. Uh, he has always been an Arsenal fan. Oh, uh, no. Most Arsenal fans have always been Arsenal fans. It's just they're always they're like, speaking, always, out, they're speaking out of those doors like, hey. Oh, no, he's, he oh, wears it proudly. He wears it proudly. Like, now that they won, they're like, oh, Manchester United, you're terrible. You barely made it in. <laughs> and it's like, oh. So on this day in history, and we're recording on a Thursday, so we're looking at August 6th. August 6, 2003, Manchester United goes to Lisbon and plays at Sporting in, a, in an exhibition match, friendly, whatever you want to call it, to um, help them open their new stadium. When, when clubs open a new stadium, they, they bring in a, a, another team and, do a, and play a match. Lisbon, uh, Sporting wins, uh, but... And I'm, I'm hoping Anthony knows the answer to this question. Anthony, do you know who, as an 18-year-old, played on that sporting team that day? You better have him do a Google search. Uh, I don't know it. I don't know. Dwayne knows. Cristiano Ronaldo. That's right. As an 18-year-old? As and an eighteen-year-old. Then he was at United the next year. Yep. That summer, oh, he, 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 he gets transferred. The, I he was with United as an 18-year-old. Yeah, no, he was like, I think he was there like within a couple of days. They were like, yep. yeah. Within weeks, within weeks, he was, uh, United signs him. Sir Alex Ferguson sees him, watches him play, and goes, done. Um, so, yeah, so that happened 17 years ago today. So, very exciting. So, that's two weeks in a row that Anthony has been completely stumped by on this day in history. So, the Fair Play of the Week Award, uh, I'm going to give it to Iker Casillas. Uh, he announced his retirement after a very, very, very long career. Um, not only a long career, but a, he overcame having some heart issues uh, in the last couple of years. He's only ever really played for two clubs. Played at Real Madrid and played at Sporting. Or, sorry, at Porto. Um, so, Iker Casillas overcame a lot of different things. A lot of different coaches at Madrid wanted him benched, didn't want to play him, and he ended up playing and, and overcoming a lot of things. Uh, was one of the captains of the World Cup winning Spain national team. So, Iker Casillas, the Fair Player of the, Fair Player of the Week award goes to you. So. 
Dan, who do you want to give your fair play with over the week award to? Um, well, I've given it a, a lot of thought. Just kidding. Um, that, again, I might have to go back to Brendan Aronson. Like, I just – I think he has worked himself into having, you know, full minutes with the with the team um, and and being a heck of a role model for, for our young kids. So I think now, you know, any kid that's listening will go ahead and, and take my advice and start watching him as much as they can. Um, and I think that will uh, – I think that will be a great place for some of these kids to start as far as developing – you know, um, a relationship with uh, with a player that should hopefully hit the world stage before too long. Yeah, yeah. There was talks throughout the entire MLS's back tournament of scouts from Germany looking at him, um, possible transfers, maybe soon, maybe maybe later. But um, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, did you have fun on the podcast today? Yeah, of course. It's always nice when I can get on and chit chat with you guys i mean you guys brighten my day thank you and, and i really appreciate you guys um embracing my stories from my youth and my uh my work history so thank you no we've maybe we've i can been... come back on again yes we want you to be on as much as you want to be on all right so uh so make sure make sure you follow dan at SoccerDan302 on Instagram. Look him up. He's on there. He's uh, on social media. I don't know if I can say that he's actively on social media. I just think he's, he's on social media. Um, he's, he has it on his phone, maybe. We'll see. Uh, follow us at Facebook.com slash Delaware Reunion. Hit us up on Instagram at Delaware Union Soccer. And make sure you tweet us at the Union Soccer and send Dwayne some shirts. So, Dan, here's what we're doing. Uh, Dwayne loves free t-shirts, so okay. we're trying to get him free t-shirts sent to the podcast. All right, so coming up next is going to be part two of our interview with John Shear and Ian Hennessy. In this part, we talk specifically about um, what winning means, and we get into a discussion of what winning means, and also about uh, the roles that families play in the development of players. I guess my, my next question is, and, and this is the, I think this is the part where we all have a hard time with is what about, what about the players that don't make it right? What about the players that, that are not at that top level? How do we still keep this game fun and engaging for them? And I, and I think it's a complex question in of itself, but how do we still develop a passion for the game for the players that are ultimately not going to make it? Because the reality is, is a small percentage of players make it to that top world stage. Yeah. And that's look, that's one that's near and dear to my heart. And I'll start with that one because that really is the 99% plus of, of players uh, in the country here, just the joy of it. And, and there's, look, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a wonderful question. It's, it's deeply philosophical. Um, for me and, and we could spend hours on this but I, I do think going back to when you build a pathway Seb when you build a pathway at least you give people a visual on, on what where the best players let's put that in quotations the best players go and what they can do and, and what, it, what it requires to be on that pathway so we can talk about you know everybody wants to be a pro but you know are you living like a pro do you really understand what it's like to be a pro you talk about, you know, the Pulisics and the McKenzies and the work that they put in. And, I mean, that's, that's a lot of sacrifices here. So it's good that people, I think, are exposed to that. And it's good that there's a pathway built and that it's there for you. If you want to push on, there's a pathway for you. But I don't think it takes away the tracks at all in any way, shape, at what's important about the game itself, the life lessons, the fun, the enjoyment. And I don't think, to John's point about in terms of development, they never want to take that away. That's not the point of it. It really is hurted and will always be, even at the senior level, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, these guys still want to enjoy themselves. So I don't think it actually detracts. I think when you have a pathway that's clear, people go, okay, that's the way forward. We get it. And, and it's for you or it's not for you. But there are the success and the joy that you have as a player, I don't think 
is tied into the level that you're at, whether it's in club soccer, whether you're playing with the best team or the worst team, whatever that means. I don't think it makes a difference. I mean, coaching for us is coaching and whether we're coaching at the, you know, the best players or, you know, those who are, you know, just in it for, for fun. I think for us really, it, it's the same for me at least anyway, but the joy of, of and protecting that, I think actually becomes a little bit easier because look, if you want to be that pro that wants to push on, there's massive sacrifices and a lot of kids and families don't want to make that sacrifice and God bless them. They shouldn't have to make that sacrifice, but that should never take away from just a pure joy. Um, but look, I, I think for you guys, and I'll turn this on you, when you talk about pathway and where you fit in, what's your club's philosophy? Where do you fit in? So when you have that player that really it's time for them to move on, you know, Jenny might have it, Dwayne might have it, Anthony might have it. What do you do with them? And I think that um, for good clubs, at least anywhere, they're going to be player centric to push them on up the ladder to give them the best opportunity. In the past, that wasn't always the case. If you know, there was yeah. kids been recruiting parking lots and driving two hours to practice at nine years of age, ridiculous stuff that I think, you know, all of us here have changed that culture in, in, in the States here. So I think when you, again, when you have that pathway, it kind of puts everything in perspective and you have a reference point to say, okay, that's, that's the way forward here. But you know what? It's not for me. And if it's not for you, fantastic. Just go and enjoy. Just like us as coaches, right? I'm never going to be the best coach in the world. I'd love to have been, love to have been the best player. It wasn't. But I still love what I do. I love the relationships I have. I love coaching the kids no matter what the level is. So that's, that's my take on that. I mean, for us, um, and we've had this conversation at length before, you and I, and for us, we, we decided a long time ago that we were not going to run traditional tryouts uh, as a way to identify or rank players right. in general because we felt like it put unnecessary pressure on kids and it put unnecessary, I think, pressure on families. We never understood. We never knew what version of the kid we were getting. Um, we don't know what the drive to practice was. We don't know what the, their day was. They had a bad day at school, good day at school, yeah. whatever. Um, so we, we kind of got rid of that, that mentality and we started inviting players in and giving them a chance to really showcase themselves and, and get comfortable, which I think that's when you find out the, the true nature of a, of a player is once they're comfortable and they can kind of showcase themselves. But the other part of it is we've been honest with our, with our families and, and, Dwayne and Anthony have been at our club for a couple of years. We've had this conversation before where if it's time for a player to move on, because we as a club cannot provide what that player needs or what that player is looking for, we will, you know, with, with respect, there's a level of honesty that we're willing to have with that parent or that family or that player and, and help them get to where they need to go. And I think that's, and I had a conversation with a parent recently where he talked to me or he, he mentioned, that if everybody just understood their role and where, where they fit in in the, in the wheel of it and everybody just played their role and understood it, everybody would have a, an easier time with this. And I think for us, our role is to develop. We, I, 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 I don't, and I've heard somebody say this before that at the youth level, they don't consider themselves a coach. They consider themselves a developer. Uh, because that's the reality is, is you're there to develop the players for a certain amount of time and then, the most likely somebody else will reap the benefits of the development you've you've helped on helped with so let way. me ask you a question Seth, for you guys yeah. and i know the for johnny because it's it's clear here so that that begs the question then what does winning mean what does winning mean for your club so you beat my team you know in the old days it was you know you my team would be nine and one your team would be ten and zero and then all the players would go over to the team that's ten and zero and so so what like what does and, and it's a question, it's an internal question of Jenny wants to answer Dwayne or Anthony. What does winning mean? What does that mean to win? And, and I, 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 you know, it's a loaded question here. So I will start by, if you, if you think it's results, I think you're way off the mark. So what does that mean for you as a club? Anthony, what does it mean to win for the union? Uh, I mean, winning just in general just means playing the way that you wanted to play, right? So you could lose a game three to zero. Or you could lose a game three to one or or two zero, whatever the score may be. But if you went out and no matter what the talent of your team is, if you went out and you uh, you did the things that you were working on in practice, and you can look back and you can be proud of your performance based off of did you give the correct effort? Um, did you have any regrets? Did you learn from your mistakes? 
um, then you can look at it as a positive, and then ultimately you can view that as a win. Do you want to take a result? Of course, you always want to take a result. Um, it's like that in any type of competitive sport. You want to take a result. But if you can, and it's again, it's part of our job as a coach is to help these young guys and, and girls realize that, okay, it's not always the score. It's uh, how did we perform? What did we do right? Did we learn from our mistakes? And I think you can find a win in everything. So I, I read a report um, a few years back. I think it was the Aspen Youth Group. We're talking, uh, they surveyed all these kids, thousands of kids, and winning was like 57th yeah. on their thing of importance. Now, name the last time a coach went to a game with the 57th thing winning that wasn't first on his or her mind. And, and that mentality, changing that mentality, and, and John could certainly talk about it because I think it's very clear because for the Philadelphia Union, winning is really not about results at the youth level or anything below the first team level. At the first team level, whole different ball game. But even then, you have clubs like Ajax. What's winning for Ajax? Right? They're known. So they sell players off, right? So I know John will talk about what winning is and in, in, in for the union. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a really good point because, uh, you know, we talk all about uh, all the time our sporting director and our academy director talk to us like we can win the under-17 national championship or the under-15 national championship. If we are not producing players for the first team, then we are all not going to be here for, for very long. So there's, it's a really clear philosophy. Ultimately, in development, especially at the older ages, I think it, a lot of it goes hand in hand and you're trying to teach players to be competitive and deal with adversity because those are, are uh, you know, lessons that they're going to have to be able to take and use as they matriculate to the first team rosters, if that, you know, how ruthless it is and how cutthroat it is. But, you know, my job is not to build teams for the Philadelphia Union Academy. That's not my job. My job is to to identify talents that I think have the potential if in the right environment can make it to the first team. So it's a really, really clear mission and a really clear philosophy. Ultimately, I think if we do our job well, you're going to see a, you know, a positive correlation between developing professionals and winning. Um, but if uh, we'll play players up all the time, Brendan Aronson, we played up when he was uh, a U16 player and he struggled. He, he had to figure it out and he was a late developer physically and, wasn't doing well, wasn't starting. And our coaches had to be patient because we saw, they saw something in him before my time there. And uh, obviously you see kind of where he is now, but um, that has to be the focus, right? The focus has to be on the individual and the focus has to be what our main goal is. And that's developing professionals. And I, I want to tell you a personal story, Seb, here yeah. on, on uh, this fabulous person, uh, John Shear here, who's done so well. I remember when I was recruiting John, he played, and I get this, this is true, he played for a team called the Massa Grizzlies. And I dare you to come up with a team that had a funkier name, Jenny, than the Massa Grizzlies. <laughs> but when I was recruiting John, and they had a, a decent team, and they had a, um, it was a big game, really. It was, in, it was in Jersey. Rainy day, horrible field. And a lot of coaches, Division One coach, were down there to watch. Then John was a Region One, right? So he was one of the top players in the region at the time. And he's, it's a rainy day, and he's having a nightmare. He's really not doing well at all. And his team's not doing well. Balls are bumping. And one by one, the coaches would pick up their chairs and they'd leave because this guy wasn't for them. And I'm just watching him, and I'm waiting for him to give up. And every pass went to skew, went awry, every idea. But the ideas were there. And he, once or twice, he'd glance over like, man, he would try harder. You hold on harder. And things are just going you know, further south for him here. But his character... Um, you know, for him winning on the, for me at least anyway, it wasn't about result of just watching him, but his response to the game at time, absolute winner for me. And, he, and he's been the most influential person, I think, um, as influential as me at the University of Delaware. And he's gone on now to be in this position. But for me, when you talk about people and there's others like John, that's a win for me. That's an absolute win for me. So it wasn't about the result at all. It really is putting him in, in, in the best position in life. And here he is now. Prime that you know just turned just turned uh, thirty I believe or thirty one in a position um, uh, just like you guys who I'd love to help and other people help as well that he's got this 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 job opportunity in the game that didn't exist ten years ago to be a very influ influential person he is already in in this area and, and nationwide so that that's winning for me and going back to your club and the tryouts and ID nights and get a read of that word and and tying into the system and passing people on and coaches players and, and coaches on as well because it's the, it's the best thing for them to do to be the best they can be in the self-actualized. So that's winning. And that's to Anthony's point. He didn't mention 
He did mention results, of course, but that comes out in itself. Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to yeah. get results. We know that. You set up a game of tiddlywinks right now. We all want to win, right? But using that really as as the um, you know the the most important indicator of success, I think, is a big mistake. And and traditionally, and I'll carry on here. Sorry, you shut me up anytime, so but I'll talk. Forever. No, no, you're no, you're you good. Talk, you talk about club soccer. Uh, it's been heavily now. It's the pro environment. That's the, the you know the kind of the go-to. That's the the, the ultimate kind of of uh, tip of the iceberg, tip of the spear. It used to be college, and and here's what happened. I think in college in this country, in youth sports, it used to be the individual teams would win a state cup, and generally this happened about 16. You guys not, might not be old enough to remember this, but at 16, if you won the state cup. In your state, you tended to go to the best tournaments, right? And the best tournaments attracted the college coaches. Some of them were full-time, some of them were part-time. Certainly, we developed over that time in terms of our structure and, and resources at college. But at the time, if you won the under-16 state cup, male and female, that was your kind of ticket to be seen by the college coaches. And then clubs realized, or teams realized, well, if we're going to win at 16, then we should organize teams at 15, and then 14, and then 13. And that's when you saw, for me kind of a nasty, um, um, you know, the poaching and all the nonsense that went down here to build clubs, to take them from other clubs, even though there were, may have been better environments, developed environments. And that's what happened, I think. And, and it was driven by college, this whole idea that you had to win at 16. And now that's a 15, 14, 13, 12 and stuff. And I think that's faded away. Thank God it's faded away because the State Cup and ODP and all that's been revamped as, as a measure of kind of, you know, climbing the ladder here. Uh, which is much better, but um, in terms of ID, like John has said, and and colleges, there's a lot of eyes on right now, and so that's changed a lot. I'm happy to see that that the the winning, the quote unquote winning at 15, 16, doesn't necessarily matter anymore now because we have this robust ID system, uh, and winning has become you know the proper development, like you talk about, and that's a, a different conversation to develop. But that's that's been a real growth, a positive growth for me. I think a shift. A paradigm shift in in the game that um, that's that's been good for the kids. I think it's better for them. Last night, last night I was sitting at practice and um, and I was scrimmaging. <clears throat> My team was scrimmaging our a, a, a team that's a year older. So I coached the 2010 girls and we were scrimmaging the 2009 girls. And uh, and we came off after a water to a water break. Um, and one of the girls of my team comes up to me and goes. And she looks a little down and like, what's up? And she goes, um, can you help me? Because I'm, I feel like I'm playing really bad and I'm making a lot of mistakes and I, I, I want to fix them. So I, I kind of, I, to a certain extent, I chuckled a little bit and I said, I, I don't have a problem with you making the mistakes. That's important. Like, I'm not mad at you for making mistakes. I'm not mad at you at all in general, but I'm, I don't have a problem with you making mistakes. What I'm looking for is your reaction to your mistakes. How are you going to react? Are you going to let that affect you? Or are you just going to go take a deep breath and just go, oh, all right, I'll move on to the next one. Uh, I'm going to learn from that experience and I'm going to move on to the next experience. And I think that's, that's in general, and this is something we talk about at length in our club, is that's all we're trying to do. Is, is, and, and you pointed this out about allowing people or getting people to be the best version of themselves. And that's ultimately our mission as a club. Our, our mission as a club isn't to win any state cups, isn't to win 350 games and, or, or win more than lose more. Um, our, our mission and our vision as a club is just to make better human beings for this world through the game of soccer, which is ultimately where we are. We're a soccer club. And at the same time, help players achieve their best version of themselves at whatever that, that may be. If your best version and I was a very mediocre average player. If my best version of myself was to be able to play uh, at a recreational or low-level travel level, then, then th so be it. If, if Jenny's best version of herself was to be one of the captains at Gwyneth Mercy like she was, then, then that's what we're going to help her to achieve. Um, it, same thing with Anthony and same thing with Dwayne. In, in any of our players in our club, I don't think – you know, it was, it was funny. I was thinking about the question that you asked, what does winning mean to, to you? I had, I had a huge win this past year with my 2001 girls that I used to coach. The win was that I had 11 players graduating high school and 11 players that genuinely liked the game of soccer. Four of them that are going to play college soccer. 
and and the other seven that still enjoy the sport. And I have a lot of those players want to come back and coach with us. That's winning. And that team and any of the players or parents listening to this from that team, they lost way more than they ever won. Uh, and Anthony's gotten to coach and coach them and, and Dwayne's met them before. That was winning for us. For us was having 11 players graduate high school, going on to bigger and better things. And hopefully at some point they'll give back to this game. Um, so that's for us, that's winning. But it's hard though, Seth, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, Jim? it's difficult. It's hard when you're losing, you're trying oh, yeah. to do the right thing, you're trying to play. The parents are on you, you know, they're pressuring the board, they're pressuring you. It's really, really difficult, particularly in youth sports, I think. Um, it's hard. And, and the advice I would give to you, you guys who are younger here who are doing is just let go. Don't be afraid to lose. You know, stick to your knitting, stick to what you believe, the right philosophy, playing the right way, whatever way that is for you. But uh, look, I can tell you as a college coach, I put my college coach on, the cap on, and I put my U.S. Youth National Team scout cap on. I, I don't care if you win or lose. And you talk about, John, your relationship with the game, your relationship with your teammates. Going back to that John story when I was recruiting him, that's what's important to me. That's the stuff that I'm after here. But it's tough. I know it's tough, particularly on the younger coaches, and particularly when they're having pressure from usually the one or two parents and we lost again and we're going to define our kids and winning. And, and look, it's important. Let's not get wrong. If we're losing all the time, okay, maybe you need to reevaluate the, the level that you're at here. Because I do think, for me, the formula would be you should win one-third of the time. You should be in tough games, go either way one-third, and you should lose one-third of the time. If you're skewing and you're winning all the time, I think it's, it can create, not always, of course, you can have a talented group, but it sometimes can create kind of a false reality. And if you're losing all the time, it's the same way as well. So finding that right balance, particularly for younger coaches, uh, is tough. And they, they need good mentorship in that regard to say, it's okay. You're not been defined by that result, which we all know as soccer people, you could be the best team on the day, Andy, and my team can still beat you. Listen, and it doesn't anything. And, and that goes into what, what are you coaching for anyways, right? Like if you're just coaching – because you're trying to get your competitive edge out, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons, right? You're, you're in coaching uh, because uh, get John Barry used to always tell me, or used to always tell us, you're, I'm coaching because I'm giving back to the game that I love. I want, I want to teach kids the proper way because I love the sport that much. So what are you coaching for if a result is all you're, you're really caring about anyways? Great point. So – so I'm going to ask a very specific question to John because the, and we've we've circled around this, and I've gotten a chance to to meet Mark McKenzie's dad uh, at length before. He's a referee in in Delaware, and he's a fantastic person and a great human being to be around. Um, what what's the role of the family? What's the role of the parents that you look for when you're when you're looking for players? Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's a good point because we, uh, you know, I do feel that we're not only just recruiting players, but we are recruiting families. And a lot of times, uh, given the world we live in, uh, you know, we've helped relocate families at times. And, and uh, the whole recruitment process, Seb, because the kids that we're, we're looking at and talking to are so young, we're not talking to them directly yet, right? So the parents are really, really critical in this process. And you know, during the recruitment process, when we have them on site and, and we introduce them to the different members of our senior staff, we're asking questions and getting to really know uh, the family and the background and the values. And, you know, ultimately, look, like not every kid that comes into the union or not every kid that makes it is going to be from like the perfect family, right? Like there's right. a lot of really good examples of kids that, you know, struggled and dealt with adversity and, and that's okay too. But Ultimately, we just want to be very clear and candid on the front end with our families so that they know what they're stepping into. You know, everybody says they want to be part of the union or part of Red Bull or part of uh, Sporting Delaware, or Delaware FC or, you know, PDA. But at the end of the day, I think it's really important to be honest and upfront on the front end because uh, be careful what you wish for sometimes. And this is a really, really competitive environment. And, um, you know, it's not one where you know, where it's like a revolving door where you're in one year and out the other. Like we have to have like, of course, like a, a safety blanket and, and give kids time to, to, to succeed and fail. But the role of the parent, of course, is making sure that they know who we are and make sure they know what our expectations of the player are and the family are and what they can expect from us in returns. So, you know, we're a professional club, so we have different types of parent issues. It's a, 
It's a, you know, it's, we don't charge our uh, kids to pay to play for us. So there's different issues that pop up, but um, I'm not naive enough. I'm not naive enough to think that we don't have our own parent issues. So I think everybody has them, but we have to be really strict with our kind of convictions and just communicate that on the front end and during so that it's very, very clear. No, absolutely. I think, I think that's a great point. Um, I think it's a, and I think it's a great point to end this part of the conversation that we're on. All right. Thanks for listening to us this week. And remember, always receive the ball on your front foot. 